Before thee let my cry come near, O Lord, true to thy word, teach me before thee. We are thankful that you are able to join us today as Pastor Mark Robinette preaches another sermon at Foundation Church here in Mount Sterling, Ohio. If this message is an encouragement to you, and we pray that it will be, please consider taking the time to go to www.foundationfellowshipchurch.org and let us know. Thank you, and may the Lord richly bless you through His Word. Let my lips thy praise confess, yea, of thy word my tongue would sing, yea, of thy Well, greetings this Lord's Day in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. It's a wonderful uh, time to gather again. We've had a a joyous uh, holiday season and we're heading into uh, the end of it as we head toward Epiphany. And we're thankful today uh, for the reasons why we lit the candles to begin with. We're thankful for hope. Everybody say hope. hope. We're thankful for faith. Say faith. We're thankful for joy, and we're thankful for love. Everybody say love. God has been good to us to not only give us uh, salvation, but he's given us one another, and he's given us a church that we can be a part of, and uh, friends that we can have and enjoy. Amen? Amen. As this week we're going to be talking about uh, the coming of the Magi, My sermon today will be called Magi, Stars, Angels, and Prophecies. This was an amazing time in the history of the world. In Psalm 92, uh, David writes a prayer for his son Solomon. And he tells Solomon here, he says, Give the king thy judgments, O God, as he's praying for his son, realizing that one day his son will be king. As we look at this psalm, we'll see also that It is a psalm talking about the coming king whose judgments will always be right. Amen? So we had David and we had Solomon as wise as he was. Obviously was not as wise as King Jesus, our Lord. Give the king thy judgments, O God, and thy righteousness unto the king's son. He shall judge thy people with righteousness and the poor with judgment. The mountains shall bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. He shall judge the poor of the people and he shall save the children of the needy. And he shall break in pieces the oppressor. They shall fear thee as long as the sun and the moon endure throughout all generations. He shall come down like rain upon the mown grass as the showers that water the earth. In his days shall righteousness flourish and abundance of peace so long as the moon endureth. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river unto the ends of the earth. They shall dwell in the wilderness, shall bow before him, and his enemies shall lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of the isles shall bring presents, and the kings of Sheba and Seba shall offer gifts. Yea, all kings shall fall down before him, and all nations shall serve him. 
For he shall deliver the needy when he cries, and the poor also that has no helper. He shall spare the poor and the needy and shall save the souls of the needy. He shall redeem their soul from the deceit and violence and precious shall be their blood in his sight. As he shall live and to him shall be given the gold of Sheba. Prayer also shall be made for him continually and daily he shall be praised. There shall be a handful of corn in the earth upon the top of the mountains and the fruit thereof shall shake like Lebanon and they of the city shall flourish like the grass of the earth. His name shall endure forever. His name shall be continued as long as the sun. As men shall be blessed in him, all nations shall be called blessed in him. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who only doeth wondrous things. And blessed be his glorious name forever. And let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we gather together today thankful that we know the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Israel knew David and Israel knew Solomon, but we know the King of Kings, the King of Glory, the Lord Jesus that came and was born a babe in a manger in Bethlehem oh so long ago, but lives in our hearts. We adore him as the wise men came and bowed before him, as the angels sang glory to God in the highest. We sing our praises to you today, knowing that if we did not praise you, surely the rocks would cry out. Today as we gather, we long for you to forgive our sins, and we long to hear your voice, and we long to be fed from heaven, and we know that you will do these things. Change us, Lord, that we might leave here different than we came. In Christ's name, we pray, and all the church said... standing for just a few more minutes as I read my text. My text is actually right from the passage that Annie read for us today from Matthew chapter 2. I'm not going to read all that, just a few verses here. Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 8. And he sent them to Bethlehem and he said, go and search diligently for the young child. And when you have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. When they had heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star which they saw in the east, which went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented him unto him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Let us pray. Lord, we pray right now, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts from the story of the Magi that came to visit Christ. We pray, Lord, that by the words of this story, Lord, you would instruct us how we might worship you, how we might serve you, how we might bow down to you, how we might give you what gifts we have to offer, that we might indeed honor you as king. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I would like to declare for you today that we are not waiting for a king to come, but that he has come. Amen? 
that Jesus is Lord. He is the King of Kings and He is the Lord of Lords. Although in our reading today we read that He came as a baby, even as a baby as He lay there in a manger with His mother, as He stood there probably as a little child when the Magi came, even though He was a little boy or a baby at that time, He was King. That God has, the Bible tells us, has exalted Him and given Him a name that is above every name. That the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. On this day when the Magi came, they came and they bowed before Him as Lord. And God calls us every single day to see that He is Lord of our lives in every area of our lives. There is not an area of your life does not belong the Lordship of Christ. Amen? Sometimes people treat church as something they go to to uh, augment their life. They have a job, they have a family, and the cherry on the top or the, the good thing in their life is they go to a church and they're around nice people. That's not how it is. The way that it really is is that Jesus Christ is Lord over everything. He's Lord over your job. He's Lord over your family. He's Lord over the United States of America and the earth. The Lord is King over all the earth. Amen? Now they don't recognize Him as King. But that's what the job of every believer is to do. The job of every believer is to live as Jesus is King. And to encourage other people to do the same thing. So what do you do when a King gives forth His Word? You obey His Word. And the king has given forth his word. It is in the Bible. The reason why we preach and we teach. Jesus said, all power is given unto me. Go you therefore for this reason into all the earth and preach the gospel. What? The good news that the king has come. Amen. And what we are working for and living for is that for God's will to be done. For the will of the king to be done on earth. Everybody say on earth. On earth earth as it is in heaven. For the past four weeks, we've been talking about the many years the world waited for the coming of Christ. For the coming of the child. Imagine it. There were rulers and there were kings. And as you read about them and learn about them, you know that they did not always represent God. That they had rules and they had laws and they were unjust. As we read about at what David prayed for his son in Psalm 72. He wanted his son to be a righteous king, to have righteous judgments, to care about the poor and the needy, to care about those that other people don't care about. Because the kings of the earth, they don't care about unimportant people. They take care of the important and the the wealthy and those that they find to be great. But God says that the real true king of the earth will care for everyone great and small. The world waited. As David talked about, he was, last week we talked about four weeks ago, that David was the hope of Israel. They had had a king who did what he wanted and not what God wanted, but David restored hope to Israel. We learned the week after that how that David was faith for Israel as he stood up to the giant, not trusting in his own strength and in his own flesh, but trusting in the God that had saved him out of the hand of the bear and out of the hand of the lion. He led the people to joy in Israel uh, when he showed them that you had to rejoice in God, but you needed to do it according to his word when they brought the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem. 
We learned that you can't just do anything you want, but that you must look into God's word. And you must see how God wants us to do things and do it the right way. And so their joy was fulfilled. And then finally, last week, we learned about God's love. God's love for David as a sinner. Our king loves us and he forgives us, but he knows what we are. Many of us are very hard on people who uh, don't do right. We look down upon them and we don't forgive them. But the Bible says, as Christ has forgiven us, we should what? We should forgive others. As God hath loved us, we should love our brothers. And that's what God's word commands. Now this week our calendar heads us toward Epiphany, which is January the 6th. And we are looking uh, at the story of the Magi, as I have told you. During this time, we remember that these Magi, they were Gentiles like us. Until the coming of Christ, God's chosen people were part of a family. The family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And if I'm not mistaken, there are none of us that can claim a genealogy or a heritage to that. How many people have had your... Well, you don't have to raise your hand, but have you ever done this? Ancestry.com. It's not going to come back. That your father was Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are the fathers of the children of Israel, the Jewish people. And I don't think we have any people that can really claim Jewish heritage. But these Magi were Gentiles like us. And part of the gospel, the good news of the coming of Christ is that God's people would not only be a bloodline, but that God would call men and women, boys and girls from every kindred, every tribe, every people, and every nation. If you remember when the church... Uh, was born in the uh, book of Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. If you remember, something amazing happened that day. People spoke in the tongues of all the people around. And why did they do that? Because God wanted it to be known that not only would it be a God of the Hebrews, but He would be the God of the Phoenicians, of the Parthians, of the Medes, of the Elamites, of the dwellers of Mesopotamia, of Rome, and all the world, that all the languages of the earth would the glory of God and the word of God would be spoken. The story of the coming of the Magi points us to this wondrous truth that the Magi were uh, somewhere east of Israel in modern day Iraq and Iran, perhaps near Babylon. They were perhaps astrologers or magicians. And I know some of us don't like the idea. We we think of Harry Potter, right? Am I saying his name wrong? Who's the guy that they write all the books about, the sorcerer, Harry Potter, right? And they think about sorcerers and magicians, and it's kind of a, maybe it sounds funny to you that that sorcerers or magicians would come to see the Christ child and would bow down, but that's really what these guys were. They were astrologers. We know this, the exact same word used for them is the word used in Acts chapter 8 for Simon the sorcerer. He was Simon the Magi. He was not one of the Magi that came, but he was a magician. Elamus, the sorcerer in Acts chapter 13, was Elamus, the Magi. That's what the magician or sorcerer, the word means in the Bible. There are people that uh, have a false religion. They look up into the heavens and they they look at the stars and they imagine what they might mean. How many have seen people who uh, talk about their sign and they talk about uh, whether it's Pisces or whether it's Libra or whether it's whatever. And they, they read their, 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 their future or whatever in the newspaper. Anybody know anyone that does that? Any have grandparents or uncles and aunts that live that way? I think Andy's brother has uh, big into that. They look into the stars and they go, oh, look, 
uh, I see that you know this is rising and this is falling and this means this and this means that. Well, that's what these guys were. They were people without a complete understanding of what God was. And they had a very flawed understanding of this. Although their false religion was superstitious and their ways were perverse, it seems that God gave them a true witness in the stars like He had done for Job. It tells us in the book of Psalms that they seem to have God's decree that the stars explain to us uh, what is going to happen. There are people who believe that there is a right way to interpret the stars and they're not astrologers, but they're people that believe that God ordained. If God ordained everything, then He ordained the shape of the stars in the heaven. He ordained when there would be... uh, eclipses and and when there would be comets that would go through the sky and we know many times throughout biblical history that there are astrological things that happen in the sky uh astronomical things that happen in the sky right what happened on the day of the crucifixion the sun was turned to darkness and the moon into blood this was a an event that happened in the sky It's one that scientists can even go back in time and they can look and they can find what exactly happened on those days. The movements of the stars and the planets are very precise and very detailed and very mathematical. It wasn't just a magical thing that appeared uh, for no reason, but it's something that God ordained from time and memorial. They had seen the sign of the starry host that proclaimed... That there would be a king born. Notice they did not come to see that a king had been made. Or coronated or crowned. But they came to see that he was born. There was enough in what they saw in the stars. That they could tell that there was a king. It was a king in Israel. And that he was born. That's a lot of information to derive from looking up at the stars. And seeing Venus or Mars or the Big Dipper or whatever in the world they saw or a comet of some sort. They saw something, they recorded it. And I don't know if you've ever been around people that love the stars. If you've ever stayed up late with them and watched shooting stars or they said, this is going to be the one time in a hundred years we're going to see the Hale-Bopp comet or we're going to see Halley's Comet. Or right, Have you guys ever seen any of this? I have a cousin who's into that and growing up he would get... Uh, charts and he would get times and he would say come on Mark let's go outside and and we'd go outside in the West Virginia mountains and uh, it's really dark out there and we'd lay on the ground and we'd look up at the sky and he'd say right look at that what's coming over the horizon right now and he would count he'd go watch one two three and all of a sudden boom someone come across the horizon I used to think that was so so very interesting they knew enough from this prophecy to know that he would be the king of the Jews that he was born in a general place Remember, Herod was a Jewish king. Everybody say, Herod was a Jewish king. When we hear about Herod and we hear about all the evil that he does, we forget that he was a Jew. That of all the people that could have been and would have been and should have been and maybe might have been happy that the Messiah was coming, it should have been a Jewish king. But he wasn't real happy as we will see. We remember that Herod was busy doing many things, but apparently after 400 years of silence between uh, the last uh, prophecies of the Old Testament prophets, there had been silence from God. God had not sent an Isaiah or a Jeremiah or someone like that in 400 years. They call those the 400 silent years. 
And so during those 400 silent years, they had the written word of God, but they didn't have uh, things that would be pointing to God. They didn't have prophets who were proclaiming God's word. We know that there were pious and devout and devoted ones, though even after 400 years, like Anna, remember her, the prophetess in the temple, and Simon who waited patiently, and he said, now I can die because I have seen the coming of the Messiah. So there were those that waited for it and believed in it, despite there were no miracles or no incredible prophets coming. But as we go to Matthew chapter 2 and we start at the beginning, we'll walk through this story and we'll see it for as much as we can, what it was. In verse 1 it says, Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, note that Matthew, this is in the book of Matthew, he doesn't record any of the stuff that leads up to the birth of Jesus. He doesn't include any of the miracles that come in this. He gives a genealogy and then boom, chapter 1 of Matthew's gospel, which is a gospel written to the Jewish people. Uh, He writes out, Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem. Now we call them wise men because that's how it was interpreted. But we know that what what the word is used here was magi, which is, if you know how to spell, which I was never really a good speller, it's where you get the word magic. Okay. The most obvious aspect of the story shouts out a contrast here that should not be missed. Here we have Gentile sorcerers from some other place traveling from afar to seek Jesus after waiting and looking for his star. But the Jewish people are doing what? The Jewish people know what city he's going to be born in. As I was telling um, Heath up here, we were talking about it. God gave a prophecy uh, to Daniel that the Messiah would come in 70 weeks. And if you take and you add from the time of Daniel and you come to the time of Christ, we have the exact amount of years. They even knew the year of the coming of the Messiah if they had just paid attention to see it in the 70 weeks of Daniel. So they knew the place. They knew the family. They knew uh, the approximate time. But were the Jews looking for the coming of Messiah? It caught them off guard. And that's what you'll see. As you see, it took them Uh, aback it shows the hardness and the sinful heart even if God were to give us a clear road map of how to live how to treat others how God planned to heal the word men's hearts are so dead and blind that even with all this we will get lost twisting and turning these directions to confusion that's what really the story of the Old Testament is God gives them a law and he says here's exactly how to live here's exactly what I want and yet they don't do what They don't do it. And here you have people that didn't even know God. And the Bible says, it says in the New Testament, it says, you know, it was a testimony against the Jewish people that people who did not have the written word of God to tell them what to do would live according to the law. Why? Because God would write it on their hearts. One of the great lessons of the law is that if there had been a law that could have given life, then the law that God gave Moses would have done just that. This is why we are foolish when we try to create a system, even in Christianity, uh, of works that says, you know what, if we do this, and if we do that, and if we do this, then good things should happen for us. Okay? This is going to please God, and we're going to be happy, and it's all going to work out. Folks, it doesn't work like that. Nothing you do impresses God. Now, we want to try to please God. We want to obey His Word. 
but you cannot earn your salvation. That's impossible. You cannot earn favor with God. God's favor to us is unmerited. He loves you. Hannah, he loves you even if you are a stinker. He loves you and he has brought salvation for you. And and the reason why you want to live for him is because of that. Does that make sense? Many of us who try to teach our children the other, you better behave. It's like Santa Claus, right? He knows when you've been sleeping. He knows when you're awake. You better be good for goodness sake or you're not going to get anything. The message of Santa Claus is not the message of the cross. He's watching you and he's going to get you and you're not going to get any goodies, you know? The letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Only when God changes a man or a woman's heart can they be saved. What does the catechism say? What can change a sinner's heart? Only God can change a sinner's heart. How Do, do we have a sinner's heart? Yes. The, as David preached, he said, Behold, I was born in sin. I was shaped in iniquity. That's what we all are. So here they, strange visitors come from the east. They came with a caravan of gifts to Herod, the king of the Jews. But their gifts were not for him. Verse 2, saying, where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and we are come to worship him. Now the idea of worship isn't really what we have, Sam. It's not, they didn't come to have a worship service, okay? But in that day, there was a tradition that if there was a king... And he was crowned and he was the new leader. Then what you did, Jonathan, is you came to wherever he was and you brought gifts. And you want to let him know that you're you're glad that he's king and you don't want him to come and burn your city down. Okay? You want to come and bring him gifts. If he's a little child and he's born and he's going to be the next king, you bring him a special box that says uh, Persia. So that he doesn't want to come and attack Persia. Like the prettiest box I ever got. It was a music box. It was made of gold. It was from these wonderful people in Persia. Why would I ever want to attack them when they were so nice to me? You know? And the idea was giving them gifts and doing good. And so when I was, uh, I've, I've been around the world. And it's funny to say it, but I've been around the world. I've been to the museums of the world. And something that you'll see in common in the museums around America and around the world, the great tapestries, the great reliefs, the great paintings, you'll see this over and over. We were in the British Museum, Derek, and you see this carved that they got from the Egyptian walls of, the, of some tomb down there. And it shows all these people lined up and there's this king on a throne and they're all lined up and they got their gifts in their arms and they got their animals that they're offering. And the people from Africa are bringing him a lion and, and the people from you know, this part of the world are bringing him an ostrich. And, and you see all this lined up. You've seen this. This has been a custom in the ancient world forever. And that's what was going on that day. So imagine it. Into Jerusalem comes this caravan. And I know we have a song that talks about there were three of them, but... It's not from the Bible. And if these guys traveled a long way, the the closest historian to the St. John Christostom, he said that there were 14 of these men. And these men each had a giant party. So imagine a giant party of these servants and camels and donkeys loaded with presents and gifts and people from strange country. Could you imagine rolling into Jerusalem in this giant caravan? And they roll up to the palace and they're like, where is he? And Herod's like, what what are you talking about? He's like, oh, the king of the Jews was born. We saw it in the heavens and we know it's come to pass. And we've come to worship him. We've come to see all these gifts. Do you see all this now? Can you see why this would have bothered Herod? 
Do you remember we just went over this? There was a guy who was king in Israel. And God rejected him as king and anointed a new king. And was Saul very happy about that? Could you imagine a whole train coming from Babylon and going, uh, We'd like to meet David. We've heard that God has anointed a new king of Israel. And Saul's still the king. How do you think Saul's going to respond? Oh, sure. Sure, I'll take you right over to him. Why don't you give him all your nice gifts? This was very, very scary and insulting and very frightening for Herod because what this meant was he knew what this meant. He knew that this meant that God was going to be taking his kingdom like he had taken Saul's. See how there's a picture here of like Saul and David and we have, we have Herod and Jesus. This is, he's, he's a Jewish king. He's being replaced. And the gifts have all come. So verse 3, when Herod the king heard these things, he was troubled. Everybody say, Herod was troubled. If you were king at the time and a giant caravan came and said, a new king's been born, where is he? You'd be troubled too. You see, when you're a king, you want to leave your kingdom to your children. And you want it to be in your family, right? And so here he's hearing that another king is coming. Instead of being glad, he was troubled. Now think about it. And if you know a little bit about history, Herod had done a lot of good things. Herod had rebuilt Israel in a lot of ways. One of the things he built that was magnificent beyond imagination was he had rebuilt the temple. You see, Solomon's temple had been destroyed by the Babylonians and they tried to rebuild a little bit of Zerubbabel even builds a, you know, kind of a, a makeshift, decent temple. And it's around for a while, but it's really not much. Okay. And uh, there is this cave in uh, <clears throat> Hebron where Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and their wives are all, all buried down there. And they have a little, a little thing down there. And Israel really doesn't have a lot of palaces. And so Israel's kind of feeling, you know, like we're not really much. Okay. So what Herod does is Herod begins building projects. And if you've studied history, Herod is the most incredible builder. And I'm looking forward Tim, to seeing some of these things that are there. Do you know that the, what, I don't know the exact order that he did it, but he built this massive enclosure around the cave of the patriarchs in Hebron. And it still stands today, Benita, intact from when Herod the king built it. The stones are there. It's built out of the same stones that are built the temple. Okay? So it's there intact, was never destroyed. And you can go there where Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and their wives are buried in Hebron. I was looking at it last night, planning my trip. Okay? So he built this enclosure, which is magnificent there in Hebron. And then he builds... A temple complex in Jerusalem. So imagine being the people of Israel at this time, you know. Things weren't so good, but now things are, you know, kind of getting better. Now, the temple in Israel in Jerusalem was so magnificent. I don't, I don't think there's any possible way you can get this in your mind. Now, uh, some of the kids that have been to Myanmar have seen something like this. But none of you, I know, have ever seen anything like this, okay. When we go to Myanmar, there's a thing called the Shwedagon Pagoda. And the Shwedagon Pagoda is the most amazing temple in Asia. Around there, I think there may be one that might rival it, but it's pretty much the most amazing thing in the world. And when you go there, they make you take your shoes off and your socks off, and it's marble for 10 acres. Can you imagine this, Heath? 10 acres of marble. Okay. Now, it 
between, marble's kind of sharp, and so your feet get a little bit cut up when you're walking around. But for 10 acres of marble and columns and places of worship and courtyards, there are thousands of people. I think that you don't get this in your mind. When you think of going to the temple, you think, oh, kind of a big church. No, 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 you're missing it. So, so this is 10 acres, right? Shway to Gambagoda, you've been there, right? Thousands of people there, any given time, worshiping and all this stuff is going on. There's all these courts and different ways to worship Buddha and all that stuff. Guys, the court that Herod built, Tim, was 35 acres. Is that a little bigger than maybe you had imagined? 35 acres? I mean, how big is that compared to the field behind your house, right? So you have covered in marble with giant stone columns. Josephus tells us that the stone columns were double columns made of one stone each, okay, that were 30 to 40 feet high, double columns all around the temple. Can you just, I can't even imagine this. I mean, this ceiling right here is less than 15 feet tall. So imagine columns that went up three times as high as this, one single stone weighing tons and tons, and they were made of white marble. The ceiling in the temple was ornately carved of cedar. Can you imagine the smell, Andy? Can you imagine a building? Now, the building wasn't 35 acres. There was a giant building, and the temple was made to very specific size. But all around it, there was the courtyard of the women, and there was the courtyard of the men, and there was the courtyard, there was an area for the Gentiles, and there was this area where there was washing done. It was just all, and there were things going on all over. It was gigantic. So could you imagine being in Israel and you had been at a time of war and rebellion and difficulty and you get this guy, he builds Masada, he builds palaces, he rebuilds the temple, he builds the cave of the patriarchs, this enclosure, and he does all of this. And so when they hear that some other king is born for them, it says not only was Herod troubled, but all of Jerusalem. They were all troubled. Why? Oh, it's going to be trouble. You know, things have been good. Things have been good. And when things are good under a ruthless ruler, you can overlook a lot. So what did Herod do? He gathered all the chief priests and the scribes and the people together. And he said, you know, where is it that Christ is going to be born? So here we have Herod who's occupied in rebuilding all of Israel, making beautiful buildings that last, palaces, Masada is on top of this, you know, mountain. It's like this impregnable fortress up on the top. But he has no idea where the Savior is going to be born. He, he didn't really know his Bible. He wasn't really a king. He was not a man after God's own heart. He was more like Saul than he was like David. They said unto him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet. And he quotes this from the book of Micah. Micah chapter 5. And I'll just read it from Micah chapter 5 because there's a little bit more there than, than is written here in Matthew. Now gather thyself in troops, O daughter of troops. He hath laid siege against us. They shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon his cheek. On, on his cheek. But thou, Bethlehem, Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth that is to be ruler in Israel whose goings have been from old and from 
everlasting. This is in Micah chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. So then Herod called the wise men. When he, when, he, when he hears what the Bible says, he said, you know, I'd like to have a secret meeting with you guys. Just, just between us. And he calls them in there. And he goes, okay, let me tell you. I want to worship this king too. And when you find him, will you send word back exactly where he is so that I can come and worship him? Kind of like the big bad wolf, right? He's not wanting to come and worship the king. What's he wanting to do, guys? He's wanting to kill the king. You see, he's too afraid to go marching down there to Bethlehem to find him because he's going to be acknowledging that these guys are right, right? And he's not wanting everyone to see what he does. He's wanting to be able to secretly take care of this situation if he can. And so he's like, hey, you know, if you guys could just let me know where he's at. Send back word exactly where he is. So Herod, when he had privately called the wise men, he inquired them diligently. Can you tell me exactly when you saw the star? He's wanting to determine how old this child might be. He doesn't care. He's not looking into the scriptures. He doesn't want to worship him. His desire here is a murderous, horrible thing. So he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when you have found him, bring me word again that I may come and I may worship him also. And when they heard the king, they departed. And this is my favorite part of the story. And I think you'd have to sort of, if you, if you don't know people who love the stars, you might miss the joy of what's happening here in chapter 9. You know, people wait their entire lives to see something in the sky. Because if you go out there, it looks the same every night pretty much. You know, you got the moon doing its thing. You got the stars and they're just kind of doing that. They're all like kind of fixed, you know, and they're kind of doing this because of the, the way it all works. But everything is where it is. And the planets, you know, they know where they're going to be. And so... These guys, they're walking and they're on the way to Bethlehem. And it says, and when they departed, the star which they had seen went before them. It was like moving in a, such a way. And they were, you know, this had to completely blow their minds. Like, like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, like we knew the general area, but watch it go now. It's moving in such a way. It says it went before them and it stopped and it stood over the place where the child was. Now, there's, there are a bunch of theories to this. This is something that certainly can happen. Retrograde motion of one of the planetary bodies. And you can read about it. But the, the deal is, is they didn't know that. All they knew is that they were on their way to Bethlehem. Bethlehem is just south of Jerusalem, about five miles. So as they left the, the city and they went out into the countryside and they're headed toward Jerusalem, they begin to see that this star is moving. They can see it and it stays and it goes over Bethlehem. And could you imagine this? It says they rejoiced with exceeding joy. See, these guys were superstitious and they had seen that they seen a star move and stop and stay. Guys, that's, that's not what stars do. Okay. And so this is absolutely incredible. When they saw it, they rejoiced with exceeding joy. Now, we don't know exactly what happened from this point. I don't know how a star could guide you to a specific house. I can't really see that happening. But if you remember when we did our little nativity here uh, last Sunday night, what happened? Who was a shepherd? Come on, raise your hand if you were one of the shepherds. All right. 
What happened after they came and found the Christ child? Do you remember what it says in the Bible, what they did? So they came, right, and they bowed down to him, just like these wise men are going to do. And the, the angels said, right, glory to God in the highest, all that stuff. To them. So what did it say that the shepherds did? They went everywhere telling everybody, right? So they went around going, okay, you will not believe what just happened to us. We were out, we were in the field, there were these angels, they appeared, we went over and we went to this house, a baby was born, it was incredible, and they told the story everywhere they went. So imagine this, this isn't a day before television and, and radio and uh, you know newspapers and a lot of the things. And so everything is word of mouth. They're like, hey, you would not believe my buddy who's been a shepherd all of his life, he's not crazy. He never drinks. He said he saw angels. The angels said that the baby is born, that is the Messiah, the one that all of Israel. And they're like, really? And they're like, no, I'm serious. It was in Bethlehem. And when we were there, we met the, we met the, the, the mom. Because the, and the mom says that they had never even come together as man and wife. And she conceived and she bore this baby that was of God. It's the Messiah. And, and Joseph goes, I'm, hey. We were espoused to be married, and he's telling, and the shepherds heard this, and the Bible says the shepherds went everywhere telling them. So imagine what was happening, Paul. So they're walking, and they're in the caravan, and they probably did what they did to Herod. Hey, where's, where's he at, right? Well, the king is born. We're coming to see him. And as you get closer to Bethlehem, people are like, well, I don't know, but I heard that what happened, it happened down there in Bethlehem, and that is what the shepherds said, and, and I think he's over there. And so as they're getting closer, more and more people know this story. Where is he? Where is he? Well, by this time, he had moved from the stable into a house. This had been some time. Some people believe it was during the same winter. Some people believe it was up till the time he was maybe one and a half years old, maybe close to two years old. And we'll see why we, re- we know this or why we think this. Maybe, you know, Herod was being safe by doing what he did because it's hard to tell the age of a baby or whatever. But there was a time period passed. He did not, this, the shepherds did not come. And then later that night, the wise men came. It happened at some point later and they'd moved from a stable and now they were in a house, which we will see right here. Verse 11. So when they finally made it to the house where they probably inquired, where is he? Where is he? Where is he? This caravan of these sorcerers, these magi with all of their gifts came. They saw the young child. Now he's a young child. He's not merely a babe in a manger. He's a young child with Mary, his mother. It doesn't mention the father here, but we know he, he may not have even been home that evening, but he, he, he's not, he has not passed away yet. He's still alive. When they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, verse 11, they fell down and worshipped him. When they had opened their treasures, they presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. The event was a shadow of the millions of Gentiles that would come to serve the living God. There were three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. These were not strange gifts. When you came to see a king, you brought him gold. Frankincense was the incense that was the valuable incense. People like nice smells. I would love to find some good frankincense and burn it in the church sometime. I love that. Uh, I would love to know what that even smells like. Maybe when I'm in Israel, maybe they'll be burning it there. But they also brought myrrh. And what myrrh was, was the uh, herb that they used to make oil that anointed kings and that they used for anointing. And so these were typical gifts. They were gifts showing that he was a royal baby. 
And I'm not sure... What happened doesn't really give us a great deal of detail other than that they bowed down and they offered their gifts. This was probably for Mary and Joseph and for the people of Bethlehem something amazing. Could you imagine this? You're in this little town. You know, you're in the town of Five Points. And we're all gathered together in a giant caravan of camels and donkeys and loads and people from strange countries come. And they are there and they're just bowing down in this little child and they're giving it gold and they're giving him frankincense and myrrh. What do you think this did to the people of Bethlehem? They're like, I think he might be the Messiah. He might be the one. This added to the story. It added to the, what was going on. There was a lot of talk. And they had heard about the angels from the shepherds. And now they're seeing people are coming from another country. And they're offering gifts. Another thing. Verse 12, and being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. God not only protected the Christ child, but he protected the Magi who headed home avoiding Jerusalem and Herod because of God's warning. They heeded God's warnings while many of the warnings of God that we get every day we don't heed. You will reap what you sow, yet when we are warned of it, we continue to sow sinfully. Judgment begins at the house of God and God our Father chastens His children as evidence of our sonship, and yet we live like we are not His children. They were warned of God and escaped injury from the wrath of Herod. Others would not fare so well. Great suffering was about to come to the region. So what happens next is when they depart, another angel comes and warns Joseph in a dream, and he takes the child says, Arise and take the child and mother and flee to Egypt. Be there until I bring you word. And Herod will seek to destroy the child. And when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt. And there he was until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord, by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. This is one of these things in the Bible that's hard for me to understand. If God is going to have a baby born of a virgin... And he's going to do this miraculous thing. Then why is he running from Herod? I mean, why couldn't God just kill him? Why couldn't God, you know, I I don't know why God does what he does. But oftentimes in scripture, you will see that although God could do certain things, he doesn't do them. Right? The apostle Paul's preaching and they want to kill him. And how does he survive? They lower him by a basket out through a window and he lives. There are times they want to get Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He escapes through the crowd and he gets away. He doesn't, you know, send angelic beings to kill them all or create a glowing force field around him or whatever. I don't understand why sometimes God does the miraculous and sometimes he doesn't. But I think it's good enough for us to know that God doesn't always intervene the way we think he's going to. He doesn't always stop the mouths of the lion in the lion's den. But his ways are above our ways. And in this way, he sent God to put a dream and to send Joseph into Egypt that the prophecy, it says, might be fulfilled. This prophecy comes from Hosea chapter 11. When Israel was a child, then I loved him and I called my son out of Egypt. This is Hosea 11.1. God had brought his children out of Egypt into the promised land and now Jesus, like Moses, would come from Egypt and then back to the promised land. Later in the final days of his life, he would take the route of Joshua from Jericho to Jerusalem 
as Joshua did. And Jesus would show all of those that he had gone before were the forerunners of the true one, the promised one to come to save the world from sin and death. And so we have an answer. Why did he go to Egypt? Because he wanted his son to come out of Egypt. Just like the children of Israel came out of Egypt into the promised land. Now what comes next? And I'll try to wrap up. I know I've been preaching for a little while here. But what comes next is such a horrible story. None of us would want to be a part of it. But I really believe that God puts this wonderful story next to this horrible story. Because really that's the world we live in today. It's a wonderful thing that God loves us. It's a wonderful thing that salvation has come. But it's a horrible thing what sin does. It's a horrible thing when death comes. Amen? We still have an enemy to be defeated and it is death. But when Herod saw that he was mocked of the wise men, he was exceedingly angry. And he sent forth and he killed all of the children in Bethlehem. Now, I know we don't want to dwell on this too much, but can you even dwell on it at all? Can you imagine anything? I mean, here we have an area that is supposed to be joyous, and the wise men have come, and the virgin is born, and here's the Messiah, and a king sends soldiers down, and they kill every male child under the age of two. It's like so... I don't know how many children there were, but what a horrible, horrible story. But we also see a picture of when God sent the deliverer Moses, right? What happened? They were killing the children. This same picture God is showing us that what God did to them, he is showing us that what happened to Moses in his day was a picture of what was going to happen to the children here He quotes from Jeremiah 31. A voice was heard in Ramah. If you look, Ramah is just outside of Bethlehem. It's an area. It's like saying, you know, uh, there was a voice of weeping in Mount Sterling. When Mount Sterling extends to, you know, these little bergs like Five Points or the names of the other little derby or whatever, it it may extend. So if you read the prophecy, there was a voice heard in Ramah. Lamentation, bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children. Refused to be comforted for her children were not. And I'm going to close with Jeremiah 31 where this comes from. Because you see the story of our lives, the story of our salvation, the story of the Magi is a story of mixed things. A story of great beauty and blessing and also of great horror. Because at the same time Christ is coming, we know that sin is still here. That death is still reigning. People are dying every day. Jeremiah 31. The Lord said, I will be the God of all the families of Israel and they shall be my people. Thus saith the Lord, the people which were left of the sword found grace in the wilderness, even Israel, when I went to cause him rest. The Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. I will build thee, and thou shalt be built, O virgin of Israel. Thou shalt again be adorned with the tabrets, and shalt go forth in the dances of them that make merry. My dad used to put it this way. Sometimes things have to get worse before they get better. God was telling them something wonderful was going to happen, but before it happened, something horrible 
was going to happen. We know that salvation came, but Christ was telling his disciples again and again, now you know what's, what's going to happen to me. You're not going to like it. What's going to happen to me, it's going to be hard for you to deal with. They were so glad that he had come. They didn't understand that he had come to be brutally killed and crucified. Thou shalt plant vines upon the mountains of Samaria. Planters shall plant. They shall eat them as common things. For there shall be a day that the watchmen upon Mount Ephraim shall cry, Arise, and let us go up to Zion of our Lord. For thus saith the Lord, Sing with gladness for Jacob. Shout among the chief nations. Publish ye, praise ye. Say, O Lord, save the people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north. I will gather them from the coast and with the blind and the lame, the woman and the child and that travail with child together. A great company shall return thither. That shall come with weeping and supplications and I will lead them and I will cause them to walk by the rivers of water in a straight way. Wherefore they shall not stumble for I am a father of Israel. Ephraim is my firstborn. Hear the word of the Lord, O ye nations, and declare it, ye isles afar off. He that scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd doth his flock. For the Lord hath redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the land that he was stronger than he. Therefore they shall come and sing in the height of Zion. They shall flow together in the goodness of the Lord for weed and wine and oil for the young of the flock and the herd. For their soul shall be as a watered garden and they shall not sorrow any more at all. Then shall the virgin rejoice in the dance, both young men and old. For I will turn their mourning into joy and will comfort them and make them rejoice in their sorrow. And I will satiate the soul of the priest with fatness and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, saith the Lord. And in the middle of all this joyous stuff, he says... A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they were not. But then God says this, refrain thy voice from weeping, thine eyes from tears, for a work shall be rewarded in the Lord, for they shall come again from the land of thine enemy, and there is hope in the end that the children shall come again to their border. I have surely heard Ephraim bemoaning. Thou hast chastened me, I was chastened as a bullock unaccustomed to a yoke. Turn thou me, and I shall be turned, for thou art the Lord my God. Surely after that I repented, and after that I was instructed. I smote upon my thigh, and I was ashamed and confounded, because I did bear the reproach of my youth. Is Ephraim my son? Is he a pleasant child? For since I spake against him, I do earnestly remember him still. My bowels were troubled, and I surely have mercy upon him. Set thee up waymarks and make high heaps for thine heart toward the highway, even the way which thou wentest. Turn again, O virgin of Israel, turn again. How long will you go about backsliding, daughter? For the Lord hath created a new thing in the earth. A woman shall compass a man. Thus saith the Lord God of hosts, as they shall use the speech in the land of Judah and the cities thereof. There shall dwell in Judah itself and all the cities a husbandman. They shall go forth with flocks. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will sow in the house of Israel, in the house of Judah, a seed of man, the seeds of beasts. It shall come to pass that I have watched over them to pluck them up and to break them down. In that day they shall say no more. The fathers have eaten sour grapes, for the children's teeth are set in edge. But every one shall die for his own iniquity. Every man that eats a sour grape shall be set on edge. Behold, the days will come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. And with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt, which covenant they broke. And I was a husband to them. 
You see, all of the good news is that God was going to make a covenant, but they would break it. And he said, but I'm going to make a covenant that can't be broken because I'm going to keep it. This is what we believe, guys. We believe that we're sinners and we couldn't keep it if we wanted to, but that God is able to keep the covenant. And he says, this is the covenant. I'll close with these verses. This shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and I will write my law in their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor for every man his brother saying, know the Lord for you shall know me all from the least to the greatest of them for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. (coughs) Thus saith the Lord, which giveth the sun for light by day. And the ordinances of the moon and the stars, light by night, which divides the sea and the waves, the Lord of hosts is his name. Let us pray. Lord, we are thankful, Lord, that you have made a covenant with us that can't be broken because you are going to keep it. Lord, you have set forth the conditions and you have set forth the power for it to be kept and salvation is ours. Lord, we know that the joy of your birth was a mixed joy because... You were born to die, born to be cast out, to be rejected by Israel. While the Gentiles came bowing down their knees, the Jews despised and rejected you. You were a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and your people hid their faces from you, as we often do in our sins. But today, O God, we pray and we give thanks to you because you can keep the covenant that you have made and that salvation is ours and it cannot be taken away. Nothing shall be able to separate us from your love, not even us. In Christ's name we pray. And all of the church said, Amen. Amen. Hello, this is Pastor Mark Robinette of Foundation Church. Thank you for taking the opportunity to listen to our audio sermons. We would love to hear from you if you have any comments, questions, or just to let us know how they served you. Go to our website, www.foundationfellowshipchurch.org, and send us a note. Thank you, and it's a pleasure to serve you.